a privilege to be before you and to look to God's Word this morning. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. We will begin with verse 14 when we get to that point. This is the first Sunday of December, and uh, for many of you, uh, myself included, we're thinking towards the Incarnation and Christmas time. Um, Reverend Greco will be back next week, Lord willing, and have some words for us to help direct our thoughts in that. We, the, however, this morning are continuing through James and looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. As I've said week by week, as I've been before you, as we've thought about James, James is practical. James is kind of a rubber meets the road uh, kind of uh, writing. And helps us understand what Christianity is like lived out in the day-to-day of our lives. Um, last w- time we were together, he talked to us about the sin of partiality. If you remember, he in that passage, in the first half of chapter 2, he talked about two men that came into church. One in fine clothes and a gold ring and one in shabby clothes. And the people that would place the man in the fine clothes in a place of prominence while they, they just um, basically pushed the poor man to the side. And James says, no, that's not how we live as believers. We should not do that. That's partiality. That's sin. And James called them out on that. And, and today, James again describes a situation that could have easily happened about a person in need within the church and then he talks about what our faith should, should drive us to do. And he, he uses that really as a litmus test of what true and authentic faith is. And, and he has some strong words for us here. This text, as you likely know, has also caused a fair bit of controversy. Because some would see James in this passage as being at odds with the Apostle Paul concerning one of the central truths of the gospel, that we are saved through faith alone. In other words, that there's nothing that we can bring, nothing we can add to ourselves to make us worthy of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's only by God's grace. It's by the work of Christ alone, through the instrument of faith alone, which is itself a gift of God to those whom God has elected and called to himself. We believe that. We believe in justification by faith alone. However, some have seen this text, and and James uses some words that, that we need to look at carefully to help us understand why he's not at odds with the Apostle Paul. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in justification by faith. We believe that faith will produce good works. And that's what James is talking to us about this morning. So how do we reconcile this with Paul's teaching that we are justified by faith? Well, we will do that by a careful reading and and thinking about this. And we'll get to that in due time. So three points as as we look at this text. One, the futility of inactive faith. Secondly, the authenticity of active faith. And then finally, James gives us, for our third point, we'll consider the two examples that he gives there. So let us pause and and pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and proclamation of his word, and then we'll read our text together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, um, even um, authors of scripture admit that there are places in scripture that are challenging. 
And so, Lord, we want to approach this carefully, and we want to approach this as learners, and we want to sit under the authority of your word, because it is your word. It is the very word of God that you have given to the church, that you have given to the world, to tell us who you are and how you work, and what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. We praise you for that, and we thank you. Lord, your word is is quick and powerful, the book of Hebrews tells us, and so, Lord, would you, by your spirit, do the work that your word is designed to do in us, in your people, Lord God. Give us grace that we would faithfully and accurately consider our faith. And Lord, I pray that you would just help us to think about this rightly. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. One of the most famous of all con men in the American context, perhaps, is Frank Abagnale. Maybe you know his story, and it was particularly when he was a young man, because between the ages of 15 and 22, Frank Abagnale became a check forger. He was involved in credit card fraud, and then he got the idea that he could impersonate people in their professions, and he did that quite well. He did that and became, although he never actually flew a plane, he he played an airline pilot, and he got to travel all over the U.S., and he actually forged checks on Pan American Airlines and cashed a lot of checks, forged a lot of checks, and put a lot of money in his bank account because of that. For a while then he had to lay low and he played the role of a a physician. He played the role of an attorney, also of a prison guard to help him try to break out of prison once the law caught up for him. All of this for his own pleasure and profit. He stole and deceived scores of companies and people, including his own father. And if you know his story, you know he actually ended up, the law caught up with him in France. He spent time in a French 
French prison. Then he was, came back to the U.S. And, and served time in the U.S. penitentiary. And then the U.S. government thought, you know what, this guy's pretty slick. Maybe we should offer him early release in return for helping us catch people doing what he did. And so that's exactly what he did. He is still alive today and runs a security consulting company. And I read that he has made millions now legitimately doing what he, protecting people from people like himself at his young age. In his youth, this man was a fraud. He was a fake. There was a wide discrepancy between what he said he was and what he actually was. And we, too, can say we are one thing and be something different. Because who and what we truly are is shown by how we live our lives. In our text this morning, James first deals with the futility of inactive faith. And I think it's important that we get this first point down properly because of the controversy that we talked about in the opening uh, uh, few moments of this sermon. The first thing that James shows us is that inactive faith is really hypocritical. And the first clue to that is that he says in the very first verse that we read, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? An individual says they have faith. This is a claimed faith. This is not necessarily authentic faith. It's not authentic faith, as James will prove to us. It's a person that claims to have faith. And James is saying, okay, if this person claims to have faith, this is how we examine them. He's saying that this person says he has faith, but does not have works. James is dealing with a person who claims faith. And James then is examining this professed or claimed faith by examining his works, his actions, his manner of life, his fruit. James is saying if there's no works, if there's no active obedience, no compassion, as he shows in this illustration of a person being in need, no piety, no fruit of the Spirit, then can that type of faith save him? And James says no. No, it can't. It's a rhetorical question. It expects a negative answer, and the answer is no. Because that kind of faith is not real faith. It's a professed faith. It's a claimed faith. And James says, I'm sorry, but it doesn't measure up. James shows then how hypocritical this assumed faith is by describing the situation that we read in Scripture. And this happens in the context of a church, of the church, that this person is in need. It, they are destitute and lacking in the, in the basic needs of life, food and clothing. The, the original language, it, it, it's the language of, of nakedness or a person who, who maybe has one change of clothes and they're falling off of them. They are that desperate. They are that poor. And that's the person that James is describing. He says, a brother or sister is in desperate need. And what are you going to say to them? You have resources, you have opportunity to help a brother or sister in Christ. And instead of helping them, you say, go on your way. Be at peace. Be warmed. Be filled. And then, and you're really doing nothing to help them. It's, it's like saying, hey, I'm sure everything's going to be all right for you. Have a nice day. When you have food, when you have resources to help them, and you do nothing... You leave them shivering in the cold and starving for food. 
And this scenario would have, would have shocked James's readers in the first century church. And they should shock us as well. And, but when you think about the first century church, what did they do? They sold land to provide for people like this. They shared things in common. They did not forbid ownership of personal property, but they were a, a, a fantastically generous people. They gave to provide for one another. They were an oppressed people. They were a minority. They had to help one another. And, for, and, and, and the Christians that had means would willingly give to those in need. They freely shared. And so James is, is bringing a stinging indictment against that person who claims to have faith and yet would have no compassion on such a person, person that's destitute and in need. And James asks again a rhetorical question. What good is this? Well, the answer is it's, it's no good at all. This is hypocrisy. And then he goes a step forward, uh, further and he says that this type of faith is dead. Does this man have actual saving faith? James is saying no. No, it's a, it's a professed faith. It's a, it's a faith that this person has, but it's not a working faith. It's not an active faith. It's not a faith that moves that person to compassion to do something good when they have the power to do so. Now, we should note carefully that James is not comparing, as I've already tried to say, but let me say again, James is not comparing two types of authentic faith. He's not saying that faith plus works equals salvation. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is comparing is a living faith that naturally and organically produces good works with a claimed faith that is actually dead. Because it doesn't act, it doesn't work, it doesn't respond in compassion, it doesn't do the things that it's called to do. Living faith is active faith, and true faith is inseparable from good works. As one commentator said, I just like his phrase here, he says, Genuine saving, get you to heaven faith, will always be expressed in how we live. Genuine saving, get you to heaven faith, will always be expressed in how we as believers live. True faith changes the way we live. And I ask you this morning, saints of God, do you have that living faith? Do you have active faith that spurs you to do things in response to what God has done for you? You can never add to your salvation. You can never merit the grace of God. That's why it's grace. But we want, that's the kind of faith that James is saying we need. And that we actually will have, if we have, genuine, authentic faith. And that brings us to our second point, the the authenticity of active faith. James now carries this argument along by means of a conversation with an unnamed questioner where he says in, in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So it's... The, the pronouns here are nonspecific, and the questioner is, is, is really, in a sense, saying one person has faith and another person has works. It's like they're saying, James, why are you getting so worked up? Okay, this person over here, their spiritual gift is faith. This person over here, it's their spiritual gift is having good works. Isn't that how it works, James? And he says, no, no, that's not how it works. And I think James might be from Missouri because he says, show me. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, 
I'm sorry, but you can't prove your faith because it's not active. It's not working. But I can show you my faith by my works because it is active. It produces. It makes a difference in how I live my life. A faith that does not result in active obedience and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not a living faith. It's not authentic. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say, and the proof of faith is in the working. James says, he goes on to say, that true faith is not just creedal. In other words, it's not simply saying the right words. It's not simply reciting something from rote memory. It makes a difference in your heart, and it shows in your actions. He says in in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. James is referring here to a statement that good Jews would recite daily, the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. And it's, it's a quote from, Hebrew, um, from Deuteronomy 6, um, 4 to 9, and it begins with hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a classic statement of monotheism. And it's truth, it's scripture, but saying it is not good enough. And James is telling us that. And the Berean Study Bible brings this out and brings out, I think, some of the sarcasm that James has here because it, it translates it like this. You believe that God is one? Well, good for you. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And so as, as people that, that try to have our doctrine right, and we should, but we need to be careful before we throw our shoulder out patting ourselves on our back for good, our good doctrine, remember who we share it with. The demons have good doctrine. They know what is right and true about God, but that belief does not save them. And it's not because they need to add works to that. It's because it's the wrong kind of faith. It's not faith that submits to the lordship of Christ. It's not faith that truly trusts in Christ for salvation. It is simply a knowledge of who God is. And it's a right knowledge because they shudder, because they recognize the authority of God. That's why the demons that Jesus met in his earthly ministry acted as they did. The unclean spirit in Mark 1 proclaimed Christ to be the Holy One of God. And in Mark 5, the demons knew they were subject to the divine power and authority of Christ. They submitted to him in a sense, but not in a personal sense, in a way that they bowed to him as Lord. Even the demons know that God is one. True faith is not just saying the right words. It's not just creedal. True faith works. Faith apart from works is useless, verse 20 says. But James is not at odds with Paul here. Paul clearly taught that justification is through faith alone. We know that we cannot do anything to merit salvation. There are no works that will save us. Paul makes that clear, and James believes that too. Prior to God working faith in us and giving us new life, we are dead in our sins. There's nothing we could do anyway if we wanted to. Paul wrote against those who would add works of the law to their faith in an effort to show their worth for salvation. But James is not saying that we add anything to our merit. He too believes that Salvation is a work of Christ, of God alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone. Remember chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, Of his own will, 
He, meaning God, brought us forth by the word of truth. We are saved by a sovereign act of God. James believes that right along with Paul. And Paul is not afraid to speak of a working faith either. James and Paul are in agreement there as well. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is some of the most, one of the most beloved texts concerning the, the free grace of God and the sovereign act of God in salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it goes on in the very next verse, we are his workmanship created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are saved by faith alone so that we might offer God-honoring and God-glorifying good works. Paul and James say the same thing. In another place, Paul speaks of this as faith working through love. Calvin helpfully um, made this statement concerning our faith. He said that we are saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is not alone. In other words, it's a faith that works. It's a faith that causes us to act. It causes us to have compassion upon the needy. It causes us to obey the commands of Christ. It makes a difference in how we live our lives. And then, just in case we don't get it, James gives us two examples. He's shown us the futility and deadness of inactive faith, and he showed us that that true, authentic faith is a working faith. But sometimes we need examples. What, what does it mean to be a working faith? What does it mean to be an active faith? What, what kind of works is he talking about? Okay, so he tells us, look at these two people from Scripture. And they're very, very diverse. Abraham and Rahab. The patriarch and the prostitute. And why does he choose the, 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 these examples? Well, one commentator pointed out, and I think it's, it's, it's helpful to think about this. He chose... Two individuals from the Old Testament that were very much removed from from Moses and the law. Paul talked about Moses and and the works of the law. Okay? And so in doing so, he in a sense shows us he's not really opposing Paul. He's not even interacting with Paul. He's just talking about what this faith is and how it works in the life of believers. And he chooses two very different believers from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. They're so varied and, and, and comprehensive, we could say it covers everything in between. The diversities of these examples should help us see how true faith works. Abraham was the father of the faithful and a major biblical figure. Rahab was a minor but yet important player in the conquest of Canaan. We read about her in Joshua 2. Abraham was a well-respected, influential man. Rahab, of course, was a woman of disrepute. The contrast between these two are sharp, but yet they teach us about true and living and active faith. And as we think about these, I want you to think with me that Abraham's faith was costly, and Rahab's faith was costly and risky as well. James points first to Abraham, the patriarch, and the specific thing in in Abraham's life was when God called him to sacrifice Isaac upon the altar. God told him in Genesis 22, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This was Isaac, 
the son of promise, the son that they had waited for. This was years after he had received the promise. This was after they had waited for Sarah to conceive. This was after Abraham got it wrong and, and, and Hagar conceived, and conceived a son through Hagar. And God said, no, this is not the son of promise. He is yet to come. And finally, Isaac comes, Isaac grows, and God calls Abraham to go and sacrifice him. And Abraham obeyed. He took his son, he took his knife, he took the fire. And yet he said, I and the boy will go and worship and return again. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. What a costly faith that Abraham had. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Verse 22 in our text tells us that Abraham's faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. What does that mean, completed by his works? Did Abraham add works to his faith to make him pleasing to God? No, that's not what this text is saying. And it's interesting that, that, that Paul uses that same phrase from Genesis 15 about Abraham's faith when he is saying that Abraham was justified by faith. And here in verse 21, James uses it to speak of Abraham's obedience. However, we have to realize that that Paul is using this word justify in a different sense. He is speaking about Abraham's faith, making him right before God. And and when we think of justification by faith, we are thinking of it in what we call a forensic sense, in a a legal sense that, that we are made right Because through our faith, it's the instrument through which we are made right before God. But James is using this word justify in a little different way. James is saying that Abraham's obedience showed evidence of the reality of his inner faith. Abraham's faith that was existent well before this, we know that from reading Genesis. His faith was there. And yet it was shown through his obedience. We could say that his works vindicated his faith. I like how one commentator put it that Abraham's obedience not only showed his faith to be real, it was through that obedience that Abraham's faith grew up. His faith grew up. Do you have a grown-up faith I ask you this morning, do you have a grown-up faith? I, I love to read about the saints of God and, and their great faith in God and the great exploits they did for God. But often that faith was forged in the dark night of trial. In the dark nights of costly obedience. Oh, that God would grant us grown-up faith. And this costly obedience seen here was evidence of Abraham's faith that had been there for years. And yet, it worked to strengthen and solidify his faith in his God. And then James calls us and and points to Rahab. What an unlikely hero she is. But we can say she's a hero of the faith. She's listed in Hebrews 11 along with a great line of, of witnesses, along with Abraham and, and all of those Old Testament saints. Rahab is in there too. 
She was allowed to be part of the lineage of Christ. We see, I think, from this text and, and what her profession of faith was, in a sense, in Joshua 2, that she was a genuine believer. She had genuine faith. Not because of her obedience. The obedience came after her faith. The obedience was the natural organic outflow of that faith. And what a risky faith it was. In Joshua 2, we read how the spies came to, to do the reconnaissance of the land. They came to Jericho, was the first city they approached, because that's what God had told them to do. And the king of Jericho caught word that the spies were there and that Rahab was, was harboring in, them in her house. She protected the spies and deceived the king's men to further the cause of God's people. By her actions and her declaration, she believed in God and her obedience was evidence of that faith. She proclaimed in Joshua 2, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She proclaimed the God of Abraham as her God and she identified with the people of God. She took risks because of her faith. And while she's almost as different as possible from Abraham the patriarch, yet Rahab the prostitute had true faith that resulted in obedience to God. And just as they were in Abraham, in the life of Rahab, faith and works were inseparable. And she was all in. She had a daring faith. She knew there were great risks in helping the Israelites, but she was all in. There was no ish with her. You know what ish is? Parents, you ever tell your kids to go clean their room and they show up five minutes later and you think, I don't know, there was a big pile of clothes and you say, is your room clean? And they say, clean-ish. That doesn't mean it's clean. No. And Rahab's faith was not like that. She was all in. She was committed. She had a daring, risky faith. She was there. She was obedient even when it was risky for her. And true faith is that. True faith is all in. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Obedience to Christ, saints of God, is a costly, risky thing. But that's the kind of faith that we are called to That's what true faith produces. I ask you, what costly thing is God calling you to today? Maybe it's simply praying for and looking for the opportunity to to share the gospel with your neighbor or your coworker. Maybe it's something as simple as getting out of bed 20 minutes earlier to have uninterrupted time with your God. Maybe it's something much larger. Maybe it's taking measurable steps toward a new job or a new life's calling, following God's call into ministry or missions. I don't know what God is doing in your life. But God calls us as his people to risky, daring, costly obedience. It'll look different for every one of us. But as William Carey said, I say to you, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. As we close, I recognize that a message like this from God's word will affect us in different ways. Some of you may be struck to the heart and your conscience may may be making you wonder if you have genuine, true, and active living faith. 
And on some one level, I think James wants that because he's saying, listen, there is such a thing as an authentic faith. There is such a thing as supposed and assumed faith that's dead because it's not active. It's not resulting in good works. It doesn't make a difference in your life. You look just like the reprobate sinner next door to you. And James is, is wanting us to see that stern warning. But I would encourage you, look at your life. Look at the desires of your heart. Do you really genuinely desire to serve Christ? Do you desire to, to be what Jesus called his disciples to be, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him? Is that the kind of faith you want? If it is, I, I would encourage you to look for the fruits because often the, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't look perfect in us. But if you see it there, be encouraged. However, you might be at the other end of the spectrum. And you might be saying, you know what? I'm good. I got this. I can check a couple boxes. I put in my check every Sunday. I do some good things. I, I, I listen during the sermon. I sometimes even take notes. But if your heart's not there, and if, if you can't see genuine faith that makes a difference in how you live and act it out, between the time you leave these doors and the time you come in next Sunday, you need to carefully consider James's words. And whether you're here or over here, I would encourage you to talk to a friend, talk to an elder, talk to one of your pastors and say, hey, help me understand, am, am I really living this out? Or am I a fraud? Am I a con man? Help me see that. That's what the church is for. And pray. And be honest before God. Seek Him in His Word. And seek Him in prayer. May God give us grace as we seek to wholly follow Him and live a life of active and costly, obedient faith. Let us pray.